Alrighty, thank you for everyone who's joined us tonight. Tonight I am live with Mr. Daniel Ray. He is the author or co-author of Story of the Cosmos. It's a book about how the heavens declare the glory of God. The link to that book is actually in our description if you're interested. And tonight we're just going to talk about his testimony, the book, and then some kind of atheist claims and things we'll look at with the cosmos. So thanks for joining me, Daniel. You're welcome, Zach. Thank you for having me. This is kind of last minute, but we've been tweeting back and forth for a while now, so it's nice to chat with you. Yeah, it's exciting. So, you, guys are, I mean, uh, you guys are doing a really good thing with your apologetics online. You uh, really are. I'm very impressed by your by your tweets and engagements and the, the things that you write. It's very thought-provoking. Thank you. really appreciate it. So I guess we'll just get into it. So my first question to, for you is kind of when and what led you to faith, you know, your conversion experience, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Well, it was 26 years ago and I was not raised in church or raised in a Christian home. And over the course of, I'd say maybe three or four months in the fall of 1993 and the winter of 93, Fall and winter of 93, no, excuse me, winter of 93, winter of 92, uh, winter and spring of 92, 93. Over the course of a, a few months, I had three convictions that came on me very gradually. One was that Jesus was real. That was sort of how it got started. I I never would have considered myself an atheist, but I certainly wasn't a, a Christian. Uh, and then I, I used to think that Christians were very nice, but they were kind of weird. Um, and really, that's still kind of the way it is, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. No, I used to think that people that believed in Jesus were a little strange. Nice, but strange. And I, I didn't, I was not seeking religious outlook or anything. I wasn't looking for faith. And then um, along with the fact that Jesus was real, uh, was this idea that the Bible was the word of God. And I had never picked up the Bible before. I didn't know anything about it. And I was 25, 26 25 years old, never read the Bible, didn't know anything about it, never studied it, didn't know any arguments for it, didn't know how old it was, didn't know what languages it was written in, didn't know my New Testament from my Old Testament, nothing. And yet I had this conviction that's never changed in 26 years that the Bible is the word of God without a single argument. Nobody tried to convince me. Um, in fact, growing up, we had a Bible in our house, and as a kid, I always used to think that if you touched it, you're, you would burn your hands. So, <laughs> uh, wow. so this 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 conviction when I was in my mid twenties. I mean, I had a nice, I had a pretty, a pretty good life at the time. I had a girlfriend and a nice job and everything a mid guy in his mid twenties would want. And then, so I started. Uh, I had to read the Bible, and I felt like the Bible was God's word or what Jesus wanted me to read. And so I kept a journal and I started reading the Bible. And uh, throughout that process, I got baptized in March of 1993. And I don't even think at that point that I understood my sin and my need of Christ and uh, what righteousness was, what the law was, what the gospels are. Um, I, I wouldn't even, I couldn't tell you now that even when I was baptized that I was truly born again. At some point, it was a very gradual process, Zach. I don't have a black to white. My conversion wasn't uh, anything that you're going to make a Hollywood movie out of. Um, it was very gradual. And and when I was a, a, a new believer, it was a struggle because I, I found myself meeting people who had these dramatic testimonies. And I thought, well, maybe I missed something. 
Maybe I didn't do something right. But in time, over time, I've come to appreciate that that not everybody is has got the Hollywood movie testimony. I mean, those are great and they're fantastic and they're wonderful to hear, but don't compare your testimony to 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 someone else's. I mean, that's just I learned that wisdom the hard way, but that was a struggle for me because my I, I didn't have a day, didn't have an hour or a minute where I went from dark to light. It was more like a sunrise and dawn. Um, and so that was 26 years ago. And, and since then, I I really wasn't didn't have a good discipleship. I, I learned by fits and starts and Bible studies and nice people and older guys that took me aside. But by, by and large, it was the school of hard knocks. But that was 26 years ago. And I still believe the Bible is the word of God and that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. How I'm still in the faith, I don't know, except for God's grace and mercy. The older I get, the more I wonder about that. So that's basically it in a nutshell in terms of how I started my faith. Definitely. So with that, you talk about how you didn't have a lot of these experiences. Did this cause you to doubt more? Like I know some people would say, hey, I had these, I didn't have these experiences. So maybe these people, let's say it, are just more emotional than I am. They're making more of an emotional impulse, you know? Yeah, over, that's a great question, Zach, because over time, I wanted, I equated emotionalism with faith, you know, tears and weeping and altar calls and having this feeling or this experience, um, kind of like getting married, you know, people fall in love and then that the love kind of what they thought was love kind of fades away, but really what fades away are the emotions. And so it took me a long time. I struggle with depression. I've just struggled with depression all my life, but um, so, so I'm always sort of basing ideas and truths on how I feel about them, which is silly, but but that's kind of the struggle that I've had. So yeah, for the first uh, several years of my walk, I was equating whether or not God loved me by how, you know, performance or how I felt. And uh, and certainly I think that that, that may be a, something that a lot of people, you know, give up and walk away from because they don't feel like they're a Christian. You know, I don't feel saved. Well, what does salvation feel like? Well, <laughs> If you read the, the full council of scripture, it <laughs> doesn't always feel good. <laughs> and so I, I thank God that, that my now looking back, that my testimony, my conversion was not dramatic um, and that it was more gradual and long lasting and true and genuine. I think it's held the test of time. Uh, and God's brought me through many difficulties and trials that I, I see more and more as I get older, my own sin and my own need of Christ and, and just how much the world makes sense looking through the lens of Jesus. Okay. Yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, so I want to talk about your book a little bit. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So if anyone's listening and you're interested in this book, the link is in the description again. It releases in a month, right? Uh, it, July 16th. Yes. July 16th. So a month and a day. It's exciting. So... What was the inspiration for your book? Well, uh, Zach, I've always had, uh, ever since I've been a Christian, I've always had a fascination for my early questions about Christianity was how does how does the Bible relevant to to our time? I mean, these were some of the first questions that I had as a baby Christian. How is this book fit with the culture in which we live now? And, and so my Christian walk started with. A desire to investigate and I've always wanted to see how things interrelate uh, that's been uh, my goal as a teacher um, and my goal as a Christian in seeing how Christ and I don't mean culturally relevant I mean I mean just truthfully relevant how does the scripture speak to us today and so the book really is a culmination of my life 
in the sense, even though I only have the first chapter as, as my essay, um, I wanted to um, see how things fit together. And so I've always been fascinated with, with the cosmos. Uh, I love Carl Sagan. When I was 12, Cosmos came out, the original Cosmos series, and I was fascinated with the universe at that time. And uh, really, I didn't have no idea what he was talking about. You know, when you're 12, you're like, ooh, this is really cool, pictures of stars and things, but you really don't understand the materialism that was going on behind it. But he, I, I credit him for inspiring me uh, to know more about the universe. But then when I became a Christian, um, I, I still was fascinated by this. And long story short, I uh, started my master's degree program at Houston Baptist University in 2014, had some wonderful teachers, Dr. Mike Ward and Dr. Holly Ordway, um, just fantastic. They took me in uh, under the program and brought my writing to the next level, but I was always interested in cosmology and astronomy and, and Christianity and theology. And so all of my essays and my things were, were sort of geared toward that. So I, I graduated HBU program in 2016, and then I just, I enjoyed the program so much that I kept doing research and writing on, just as a hobby, on Jesus and the universe just quotes and scripture and how things I tried to spend time thinking about how things came together. Well, at the end of my degree program, I suggested to my professor, Michael Ward, and uh, a Hubble Space Telescope scientist that I had met during my degree to do a joint presentation on the Hubble Space Telescope and the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, I don't know if you know this as another side story, something for another time, but uh, Dr. Michael Ward's book on planet Narnia suggests that Lewis used medieval cosmology imagery in the Chronicles of Narnia. Hmm. And so I thought it would be a perfect presentation to have a Hubble Space Telescope scientist and Dr. Ward, Michael Ward, talking about uh, the heavens and imagination and science and reason and C.S. Lewis and just everything that you would love. It was like nerd night. And so they thought, yeah, that's a great idea, Dan. Why don't you figure out how to put it on? And so that began an 18-month process of putting together a program, raising funds to have a Hubble fellow come and talk and to have Michael come and talk all in one night. We had it finally, we had the event at the Southwestern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary in March of last year. And there was, it was well attended, 200 people. It was fascinating, it was wonderful. And out of that event came uh, the genesis for this book. Uh, my contact at the seminary, Paul Gould, who's uh, Dr. Paul Gould, who's a philosopher, uh, he thought it would be a great idea for a book. And I originally told Paul, I said, no, I, I just want to have this event and I don't want to write a book. I've never written a book. I had no manuscript. I had no real, I mean, I've always wanted to write a book, but at that time I wasn't seeking to write a book. And so here comes a published author who is willing to shop around a book project for me if I'd be willing to sit down in his office and come up with something uh, about this. And so we did. And Paul took a chance with me. I was a nobody. I had no publication experience. And so Paul and I sat down and we thought about people that contacts that we knew. We asked a bunch of people to contribute a chapter on what they thought about the glory of God and everybody agreed to it. And uh, he shopped it, Paul shopped this to three publishers and the third one took it. We didn't even have a manuscript. So it was just, <laughs> you know, so it was really, it was really, it's really, I could say it took us, it took us two years sort of by the time it's out, it'll have been a two year project. But for me, I look at it as the culmination of my life's work and hopefully the beginning of more books like this, just to see how reason and imagination can be integrated. Faith and theology and science and reason and imagination. It was my desire to sort of fit all that together. So my intro essay in the book is just that. I just take a bunch of stuff and I put it all together. Jane Austen and space telescopes and science and theology and poetry. And I just throw it in there as a mishmash, but it reads like a good story.
Well, yeah, that sounds like really great stuff. Hopefully, I'll be able to read it soon. So, what's the main idea of your book? What's the I just took AP English. I should remember this. What the word's called? What's the main? I, I forget it. Thesis. English. Thesis. What's the thesis of your book? There we go. Yes. The thesis of the book is centered upon Psalm 19. And Psalm 19 is a, a two-part psalm. And it begins with, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day unto day pours forth speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. And then it goes through, David goes through, and he outlines how the heavens declare the glory of God. And then midway through the psalm, it switches to God's counsel and his word and his truth and his precepts. And he, he, the, the, the centerpiece of the psalm is the sun. Uh, and, and at the sun, uh, you know, the sun illuminates our physical sight and the sun, the S-O-N, also illuminates our spiritual uh, sight as well, our soul. So there's a, there's a, there's a two-part harmony there. There's the light of the world and the light of the world. There's sort of the sun and the stars and everything in the sky, lights. And then there's the light of the truth of God's word. And so creation, the opening part, it's like a, a little Genesis, you know, where, where you have the creation and then you go specifically a, a, a general revelation of God through creation in the first half of the Psalm, and then a specific revelation of, of God through his word. So the book is centered on, I think we have quote Psalm 19 five or six times throughout each of the essays. Um, and it's, it's centered on that. It's an extended commentary on how uh, each author sees the glory of God. So we have different contributing authors, each contributing a different voice, but talking about the same Psalm. And it's kind of like, a, in, a, in a way, like the gospel, Zach, where we have a fourfold uh, witnesses uh, each attesting to a little different aspect of Christ's life and teachings. And so this is kind of like that. It's a 12-part uh, or 13 chapters talking about the different facets of how the heavens declare the glory of God. So it's not just science. It's science. It's theology. It's literature, uh, art, philosophy, history, mathematics. Uh, and so it's it, and it's everybody that has written a chapter has has done so out of their their expertise and what they enjoy about the universe. So it's a uh, it's a uh, basically an extended commentary on Psalm 19. Also, it includes a lot of C.S. Lewis's thoughts because uh, Lewis believed that the Psalm Psalm 19, and this is a quote from him, to be the greatest poem in the Psalter, and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. So he loved the Psalm as well, and so. Dr. Ward, who is a Lewis scholar, contributed a, a chapter about Lewis's imaginative writings regarding the heavens. So that is basically the gist of the book. And I think everybody's, we talk about black holes and binary stars and exoplanets and habitable zones and aliens and meteorites and uh, all kinds of things. So I think uh, this, there's something for everybody. And it's written for a wider audience, I think, okay. as well. I think it's very accessible. Awesome. So you said it's a collection of essays. How many authors are there in the book? There are, including myself, uh, 12. 12. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So, so mm -hmm. okay. So I know I looked at the cover. The subtitle is How the Heavens <laughs> Declare the Glory of God. So now I'm going to ask you, how uh -huh. do the heavens declare the glory of God? Well, that is a fantastic, very insightful question, sir. I'm <laughs> <laughs> it seems so simple, right? But it is it is those simple questions that are so wonderful because yeah. we could spend three hours talking about that. 
Um, but to bring to bring it back to the text and to be simple, I'll start with a just a just the etymology of glory in the Old Testament. It means the word comes from a, the Hebrew, and I'll probably mispronounce this kabod or kavod. And there is there's really no one English equivalent for this word. We're used to the word glory, but just think about it for a second, Zach. What do you think about if you think about the word glory? Tell me some glory. connotations. When you're in English class and your teacher says, what are the connotations of the word dump, right? And you think of the word dump and you come up with other words that try to describe dump. So if I say glory, what, what comes to your mind immediately? I would say like champion, fame, power. Yeah. That's yes. kind of what goes in my head, you know? Yeah, and, and, and you're not, you're, those are pretty good because uh, what the Hebrew glory means, first of all, is it's a kind of a hard word in English, but it means there's a weightiness to it. So if you've ever met somebody, and you've already, when you meet somebody that's famous, you kind, you're kind of in their presence, in the weightiness. You are, they're well known. Okay. Aren't you pretty famous? I mean, you wrote a book, you know? I did. I, I don't think anybody knows about it yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm talking like a president or a king. Or we might we might attribute this to celebrities today. When you when you talk to a celebrity, you feel the weightiness of being in their presence. You're like, oh my gosh, you know, when you watch Ellen or something, and, and people freak out. The audience members freak out when they come downstage and they see Ellen and they can't stop crying. You're like, oh my gosh, Ellen. You know, there's this sense of weightiness, like the person is important or has renown, fame, right? So if you win a the, the, the Toronto Raptors, you know, they have a little bit of glory uh, for being NBA champions or the St. Louis Blues. Both of these teams were the first time they've ever won anything uh, champion wise. And there's glory in there. They're well known. They have this they have this title. And that's kind of what, you know, the Stanley Cup is pretty cool or the NBA trophy or the, the, the Lombardi trophy in the NFL or the MLB World Series trophies. You know, the teams display these things because they are weighty, important. They demonstrate and show forth accomplishment. And this is precisely the similar kind of meaning to the word weighty in the Psalms. The heavens declare the weightiness of God. Um, I mean, just take, for example, our own sun, which is 864,000 miles in diameter. You can string 109 Earths across the center of the sun. A million Earths, if the sun was a gumball machine, a million Earths could fit inside of it. It is sits at a distance of 93 million miles, one astronomical unit. Uh, it's relatively calm. It doesn't have a companion. Um, it is, in terms of other stars, it's not very volatile. Um, but, but that, and it's massive. It's massive, it's bright, uh, it's, it's, it's just awesome. You can't get close to it without it being lethal. And so, and that's just one star. And now you think of the fact that you take the, the star cluster of Omega Centauri, the largest star cluster that we know exists in the Milky Way. Inside Omega Centauri are stars clustered together like a hive of bees, 10 million suns all clustered together. Um, on an av with an average distance of about 2 trillion miles in between them. And most of them are bigger than our own sun. Our own sun is a dwarf, but how can you call something a dwarf that's 864,000 miles across? Well, you have stars like Antares, which is 700 million miles in diameter, or you have Betelgeuse, which sometimes gets up to a billion miles in diameter, depending on its atmosphere. 
So all of these things show forth God's weightiness. They are uh, bright. They are well known. I mean, think about how many uh, cultures over the eons of time have known these stars and have named these stars and have seen these stars repeatedly, time and time and time and time again. Um, and so it's just, it, as you said earlier, a, a champion, um, uh, glory, an accomplishment, an achievement, and it also can refer to wealth and power, as you said earlier. So it's it's really a it's a huge word. It's a big word, um, and there's a lot packed into it. But that that's a general kind of long-winded definition. Sorry about that. No, you're good. That that was a great <laughs> explanation of that. I really appreciate it. Uh, let's see here. So you talk about these things. So now, if you could point out maybe one, two, three areas in the cosmos that point towards the need of a creator, you know? Okay. Um, well, I think the first thing, if you go to, uh, if you have your Bibles handy, if you go to Jeremiah, in the text of Jeremiah, in the 31st chapter, um, God is talking about his new covenant, a new covenant. And this is a, a foreshadowing, a, a prophecy uh, of what, God's promises are going to be like in the Messiah, in his new agreement, in his new covenant with his people. And as he's what is he what does he have to compare this new covenant that he has with, that he is going to have with his people? Now this is this speaks of Jesus, but it's interesting what God uses to compare the new covenant with. He says, "Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for the light by day and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night." who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth stretched below, stretched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. In other words, the fixed order of the heavens, the regularity, as Genesis says, that they are for signs, for seasons, and for days, and for years. And I think the, the primary, uh, one primary aspect of uh, the universe demonstrating that it is under the guidance and care of a creator is its uncanny regularity. I mean, we can predict solar eclipses and lunar eclipses we know exactly what time the sun's going to rise tomorrow and what time it will set tonight. It hasn't, it's about to set uh, soon at nine o'clock when well, no, it's got a couple more hours, but, but the regularity. So, so the constellations, the idea like this, as summer approaches, the constellations above uh, in the Northern hemisphere, the summer triangle, the Cygnus, uh, you know, the, these constellations, these stars, the regularity of the Dipper, uh, the big Dipper, the fixed regularity of Polaris, the stars for navigating, for telling cultures when to harvest and when to plant and how to navigate the open waters. Uh, that is far more an attestation, I think, of intelligent design than anything else that I could think of. So the regularity and the fixed order of the cosmos would certainly be certainly be one. And then there's the another thing that I think, and this gets back to glory, Zach, and we can just look at modern science for an example. The amount of money that's spent by nations investigating and exploring the universe. I mean, we're talking, if we pooled all the money that was spent by all the nations annually, um, I know for major countries that space budgets are relatively small, 
But if you look at the billions and billions of dollars that are spent in our country and, and Europe and other countries to go to the moon, to go to, to, to planets, to look at stars, the Hubble Space Telescope over the last almost, uh, what's it been, 10, 20, uh, we're going on 2020. So 30 years, in 30 years, the Hubble has cost uh, somewhere over $10 billion. Um, it's so, so the vast expense of these probes, billion dollar probes, multi-billion dollar probes, multi-million dollar probes, suggests that what we're looking at has an inestimable, um, an incredible value. Um, so you have the regularity and, and we wouldn't be able to send space probes into space um, if, if they weren't regular, if we couldn't predict their patterns, if planets didn't orbit, if the gravity was the, 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 the constant uh, of the force of gravity. We, we couldn't do these things if the universe was not predictably regular, didn't have a predictable regularity to them. So just the expense, if, you, if I say, Zach, give me a billion dollars, I have an idea. What are you going to want to know? Why do you want a billion dollars, right? <laughs> what are you going to do with my money? But, I wish I had a billion dollars. To get yeah, you. I know. Wouldn't that be great? But but that's the kind of thing. Why are we spending a billion dollars on looking at nebula and gas and stars? So who cares? But that's not the attitude. I mean, the, the idea that we invest this kind of money to look at these things attests to what the Bible says about uh, the glory of God. It is invaluable. You can't put a price tag on it. It is wealth. It is, a, it is an example of God's power. It's glory of his inexhaustive resources. Uh, and it inspires us. It stirs the heart and the minds and the imaginations. And then the third thing I think, is, so we have, uh, we have the regularity, we have the, the expenditures that we, that modern man has. And then the third thing I think is, is found in Psalm 8, when David is looking at the heavens, the sun, moon, and the stars that God creates with his fingers, David says, and it leads him immediately to contemplate who he is in relation to the creation that he sees. And so when we look at the universe, whether we're skeptics or believers, or we inevitably are led to pondering our own existence. You know, where did the universe come from and why do I find myself in that? Who am I? Why am I here? And so it just seems like the universe naturally provokes us to think about these things. And I think uh, it, it, it attests to what Roman says, that, that we intuitively know when we look at the universe that it's, it's so beautiful, it's so awe-inspiring, um, that it bespeaks of, of God's invisible attributes, that we want to be a part of those things. So there's, there's the contemplative aspect, there's the fixed regular order, and then there's the, uh, the fiscal investments that... Uh, governments and scientists, scientific organizations make. I think those are, for me, those are big ones. I mean, there's a yeah. lot, of course, but but those are some big ones. Yeah, those are three great examples. See, this is why I love having just people that are smarter than me. You know, you learn <laughs> so much. So, I no, mean, I, I would say, let me say, I tell this to, to my students too, when I was used to teach, they think, Mr. Ray, you're so smart or whatever. And I, I think it's just a matter of, of, cause I, as I get older, I learn from my students. I mean, I, I, I know that I know different things, but, but, but knowledge is, is, a, is, is a difference in, 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 we all have certain kinds of knowledge. You have life experience that I don't, that you could teach me something about. Um, and so we can all learn from each other and there's, there's dignity in that. And I think that we all, we all know differently. And it's funny because when I finished writing the book, I didn't feel like I knew anything anymore. <laughs> you know, it was really kind of humbling. I'm like, oh, brain dump. Now what? I've forgotten everything or what, what do I do now? But I, I think knowledge is, is, is a shared, you know, everybody has part in the body. That's what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, that you can't say to the hand, 
the eye can't say to the foot. And so everybody has a part in the body and we can all learn from one another. Um, yeah, definitely. I am, I, you know, when I first met you guys, I admired your, your zeal for what you were doing. It was, uh, it's good. It's really good to see that in, in young men who are willing to do that. It's so cool. Um, and so that was an inspiration to me and I have enjoyed following you since. So yeah, don't, don't like I'm smarter than you. No, I, I think you have a lot to contribute to the body, young man. You really do. Don't, yeah, I, I think, really I think it. it's Paul's exhortation to Timothy. Don't, don't let people look down on your youth. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank so. you. Uh, so yeah, that's great. So that's kind of the books. Now I want to talk to you about a couple uh, common arguments against the existence of God. Sometimes these aren't even arguments. They're just claims you're going to hear a lot when you say, for at least from atheists, if you say you're going to believe in God. So right. I have two here, but I mean, we can get into more if we want. The first sure. one I have is the claim that there's no evidence for God. Now, I don't know about you, but I, whenever I'm looking at replies to tweets or YouTube videos or whatever, there's atheists now are always saying there's no evidence for God. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, uh, I love all my skeptic friends. Um, and I love to get into spirited, passionate debates about things uh, regarding this. <laughs> I do. And um, I think that is the number one thing that I probably hear the most is that there's no evidence. But I think for now, this is just other apologists will have different approaches to this. Um, my approach is pretty simple. If you tell me there's no evidence. So, for example, I don't know if you saw one of my tweets uh, a while back, I had a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge without any cars on it. Oh, I remember that. Okay. And I say in the tweet, I mean, it's just, it's just basic 101 stuff, you know? I mean, that is Highway 101, by the way, <laughs> the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the, the, the point is this. If I put that picture up there and I say, there's no evidence of automobiles on this bridge. The only way I can make that claim, Zach, is if I know what an automobile is. And so when an atheist tells me that I, that there's no evidence for God in the universe, it's the very same thing as telling me that there's no evidence for me saying that there's no evidence of cars on the bridge. I can only say that because I know what cars look like. And so if you're going to tell me that there's no evidence for God in the universe or no evidence that God has created the universe or just no evidence for God, period, what you're conceding, whether you're not saying that out loud, what you are saying tacitly, what is unspoken, is that you would recognize the evidence for God's existence if it did exist. If, you're, if you don't see God's existence, then that can only mean that you know what you're looking for. And if you don't see him, then, then you have a standard in mind. And I think a lot of atheists who say this probably don't even think that through. Um, but I think that is a, I, I hate to say easy, but, but that really is because what that reveals and what that has generally revealed when I have conversations with skeptics about this is it generally reveals a mindset of not healthy skepticism. There's nothing wrong with being skeptical about things, but you need a standard of truth in order to be skeptical about something. You have to, if I say, well, Zach, that uh, shoe doesn't look like it's 12 inches. It looks like it's uh, six inches. And you're like, no, 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 it's 12 inches. What's at stake there? How do we figure this out? We both have to agree upon a standard of measurement. If I say that, that if I continue to press that shoe is, is only six inches and you break out a ruler and say that's 12 inches, I'm going to say, well, I don't trust your ruler. And it, we could just 
spiral downward into a into a mindset of denial. And I think a lot of times when you hear there's no evidence, it just is a form of denial because nothing and you've seen and probably have participated in these conversations where nothing that you present ever satisfies their skepticism. Definitely. Yeah, that's a great answer. I just, yeah, I totally remember that tweet now. And I, I looked at that tweet. I'm like, that's one of the best things I've seen in a long time. Yeah, that was really, that's <laughs> a great way of putting it. So this is, you go. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to go to the next question. So I'd like to hear what you say before we move on. No, you're good. I'm fine. I think that's Okay. Fine. So what would you say is the, so we said, obviously, there's not no evidence. So what would you say is the best evidence for God? If you're going to talk to like a skeptic and here's, you, got, you got one argument for God or, you know, what, what, would, what would you go to? What's you, what do you, would you say is the best argument for God? Well, I think this is just Dan Ray, and I know diff, apologists will differ on this, but but um, I think, now watch when I say this, uh, but but you can you and I can picture in our heads what kind of reaction this is going to engender, but I think the primary evidence that we have is the Word of God, because I have been in so many discussions with skeptics who laugh at it, who mock it, who critique it, and there's an immediate uh, denigration, a mocking, uh, a rejection. I mean, I've had skeptics tell me that the Bible doesn't count as evidence. It's a claim. It's ridiculous. It's immoral. And the, the amount of energy, time, effort, and commentary that's leveled at Scripture um, this this kind of goes to back to something that I do on Amazon.com. If I see a Christian book that's out and I read the reviews, and there's a lot of heavy one-star reviews where skeptics are writing pages and pages of negativity about the book, I'm like, that's probably a pretty good book because of the kind of reaction that it's getting from the skeptics. But I think I have not seen any more intensity of effort poured out on anything else other than scripture to the extent that I see this. So to me, the the intense opposition, the ridicule, the energy, the amount of time that skeptics spend talking about the Bible or mocking the Bible or ridiculing the Bible says to me that that is the primary and best kind of evidence. And I think it attests to what scripture itself says, that the God's word will not return to him void. You present the scripture and it will accomplish something. And so... You know, Jesus tells us to expect the ridicule and the mocking and the hatred, but I, there's nothing else like the kind of reactions and negativity that I see from skeptics and hardcore atheists about Scripture. They go after it tooth and nail. So yeah, I, uh, now, now you don't. Now somebody might say, "Well, you don't see a whole lot of people converted by this, or you don't see people converted by Christians quoting Scripture." I'm like, well, it, 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 it's not for us to judge what's going on in the interior of a person's heart when you share the Word of God. Um, but I, I personally find in my 26 years of Christian experience that there's nothing better than the Bible itself for, uh, for a beginning. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right about the whole mocking thing. People, it seems like sometimes online they can't, say like three or four words of the Bible without having to put some sort of insult in it. So, oh yeah. 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 That, and, and to me, I, that that's again, strongly indicative of the fact that it is 
sharper than any two-edged sword. It's like when the objections are like an ouch, <laughs> you just cut, yeah. cut me. <laughs> you know, but but in all seriousness, it, it it is on us too, especially in social media. I think either you or your your partner had had a short little but very good article about being careful about how you tweet, being careful about mm -hmm. how you present. Um, and it's very important because we can present the word in a stupid Giacomo kind of way and in a very demeaning way as well. It's not just skeptics who can be nasty. Um, and so it is first Peter three fifteen with meekness and humility. Um, we must present, uh, the word of God. Um, but in presenting yeah, definitely. It, 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 and just because somebody negatively reacts to the word doesn't mean that you're not doing that. It just it engenders the most anger and vitriol and opposition that I've seen in all the things in all my discussions, people don't like the Bible. Now, some atheists will say, I like the Bible, but when it gets personal, it, it's when it gets difficult. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of, sometimes the best argue, arguers for atheists are just Christians who aren't living a godly life. So going on to the next question I have here is, so another common claim that we'll see here is the idea that God of the gaps ideology. So that the look at something like, let's say the cosmos and like the origin of the universe, or like you talk about these amazing uh, features that we have to fine tuning, and they'll say, hey, you know, I've heard, I've heard Richard Dawkins say this a lot. He's like, the or the universe will have its Darwin just like the origin of life had its Darwin mm. um, or evolution. And so I'm curious, so what makes the cosmos not a God of the gaps ideology? Well, it's interesting, Zach. It's a great question. It always comes up. Um, but here's the, from a lot of people, uh, when skeptics bring this up, the one thing, the, the one assumption about a skeptic's critique of a believer's insistence that the universe was created by God, if they're saying, oh, God of the gaps, here's what's going on. They have taken scientific explanations, laws, okay, the law of gravity or uh, the strong nuclear force in, that holds the proton and neutron together in the heart of an atom or the weak nuclear force that has to do with the electron or the, the, um, the cosmological constant, the, the constants and quantities of our universe, the laws of our universe. Um, they will attribute causality to descriptions and laws. So what has happened, Zach, is that a skeptic will say, well, we used to think, um, say, for example, gravity, that God held the planets together. You know, Newton said that he discovers gravity, but he's still saying that God holds the planets together. Well, along comes Einstein and says that, that the cosmos is really a uh, space-time fabric. Really, space is just an invisible, stretchy flying carpet on which all the other objects rest. And... So you go from the idea that God's holding all the planets together to this, to these explanations for Newtonian gravity or these explanations for Einstein's version of gravity. And they say that, oh, look, gravity replaces God. Well, no. What we call gravity is just a description for something that we really fundamentally don't know what it is. I mean, you can explain it. There's equations for it. But it doesn't cause anything, Zach, any more than a math problem or a poem would bake a pie, right? You can say, oh, well, we know how to, we know how pies are baked, but, but that explanation, it's perfectly legitimate. 
I'm not saying that we shouldn't describe the universe or we shouldn't have laws, but the laws don't cause anything any more than a recipe for apple pie causes an apple pie to be baked. And so what the God of the gaps argument does is that it takes the pie maker and puts all the skills and ability of the pie maker into the recipe and calls the recipe something that creates the pie. So what they're saying is that the laws have now replaced God, but laws don't cause anything. Do you drive yet? Are you driving? Do you have yeah, a Yeah, I do. I have my license. For okay, years. so you have you ever sped? Never. Never? Just kidding. You know. <laughs> Okay, so you I'm go safe. past a, you go past a a speed limit sign, and you look at your odometer, and you're going faster than the sign. What's wrong? What what happened there? Well, the law cannot cause you to slow down your vehicle. The sign on the highway has no power to make you slow your car down. But what skeptics do when they argue for God of the gaps is they intentionally put divine power and attributes and causality on the speed limit sign. And they say the speed limit is the cause for why people are going this, this fast. No, it's not. It's the agent in the vehicle. So what they've done when they argue for God of the gaps, oh, we found a speed limit. That explains why the cars are doing this. No, the speed limit doesn't explain why the cars are doing that. The agents in the car are the final causal purpose for why they're going as fast as they are. So what they've done essentially is they, they, they've replaced law, replaced God with explanations for the cosmos. But the other assumption is, is that if you think science is doing that, then what you're also assuming is that you think you can find God with telescopes and test tubes. And it's not the purpose of science. Science was not designed to build tools and satellites that could detect heaven or God or angels or anything like that. So if you think science is disproving or displacing God, then the other assumption is that you think science can find God in the first place. And obviously it can't, that's not the tool of science. So I think the God of the gaps is, uh, is fallacious the way it's used against Christians. Now, it, so, so if you come up with a law and you find out how something happens, that doesn't rule out God. It just makes him more magnificent. We just kind of know a little bit more about how he did something, but it doesn't rule out God himself, right? Yeah, so, 100%. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's completely fair. Uh, just like if you were at Starbucks and you say, well, how is this coffee made? Well, I could explain to you the science of coffee, but does that do away with the person that made the coffee for you? No, they're two very similar, two very legitimate explanations. A person did it. And the machines and all the science of and biology of coffee beans and steam and espresso machines and how all that works is also a legitimate explanation. But what's happened is the the natural explanations have taken on divine and causal powers, and that's just where the fallacy uh, really is in that regard. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So my next question for you is: so a lot of people are talking about that we're having like a mass exodus away from the church a lot of young people and even the, the millennials and even the generation before that it's starting we're starting to christianity starting to lose membership here in america you know we're probably a, like a century behind europe and you can see how postmodern europe is right now so mm -hmm. my question for you is why are so many people rejecting the gospel if it's true well i think uh jesus's words come to mind uh that um the love of many will grow cold. 
um, I, I think it's just a, a sign of the times and a tragic sign of the times, but Jesus told us things like this will happen. And he even said in one of the gospels, I don't know exactly where the reference is, but uh, will he, will the son of man really find faith on the earth when he returns? Uh, and so as people, you know, before Jesus returns, people will mock the idea of his returning. And, you know, he says that the love of many will grow cold. And we are witnessing a, I think, culturally a great apostasy uh, that certainly does fit in with the kinds of things that Jesus told us to expect before his, his return. And it's tragic and it's sad. But I think, you know, there's no, for sure, Zach, there's no one magic bullet that's going to stop the bleeding. And I think a lot of times we miss we misdiagnose this and think there's one certain thing that can solve all of these problems. And it's really the the, the waywardness of the human heart and sin. And I think if, if anything, we need to start afresh with more uh, gospel-centered exhortation, more more use of scripture and less... Um, uh, not less, but just but but just another just to to revisit, um, you know, preaching the the word of God and and what does the Bible say? Um, getting back to the truth of Scripture. Uh, not that that's going to solve the problem of of apostasy, but I, I I think we are experiencing the birth pangs of the last time, and I think what we are witnessing in Europe and both in our country as well is uh, the love of many growing cold. Um, Jesus and the parable of the seeds. Uh, there's only a few there that, you know, there's three kinds of seeds that don't, don't hold. And there's only one that does. And so I, I think it's something we shouldn't be surprised by, but something that should cause us as believers to, to look up because our redemption draweth nigh. You know, this is the beginning of birth pangs, a, a great falling away, a great apostasy. Um, and it's sad, but I think that's, that's kind of my take on it. I don't think there's any one thing that's causing it except just good old fashioned sin and unbelief. And I think that's a great diagnosis of the current tragedy going on. So I should remind everyone that's listening that we're going to do a live Q and A at the end right now. There's no cues, so we can't do an A, but <laughs> that's, I that's mean, all right. if, if anyone has any questions, be sure to let us know. But I mean, before we get to that, um, you talked to me, you sent me that tweet about the, March Madness thing that we had going on. So I'm curious if you had any questions for me about that. <laughs> no, I think that was a, a great thing you guys did. I mean, it was uh, really good. I think it re really brought a lot of people together. And and I, I found a, a lot of pe good people to follow. And I, I think that was a genius way to, to, to bring a, a, a rather disjointed community of Twitter apologists together. It was great. I think you guys did a fantastic job with that. And uh, I hope it goes well uh in the next march and it's exciting it's really cool it was really creative how'd you guys come up with that um so i mean it's a little weird but i'm kind of like i'm a nerd in a lot of ways like i love i love sports as you can see by my just right behind me you know uh -huh. i love i love sports so as a kid i'd always just race my cars my nascars or play football in the yard or play basketball and I always used to like simulate leagues or tournaments in my head and I was sitting and hanging out with my friends we skipped school to watch the tournament and it was an excused absence so we're not like bad kids we, we had permission uh so we skipped school and I had this idea I'm like hey I have this decent following on Twitter we, we can make a Christian apologist March Madness and have some fun so I kind of 
scrambled some brackets together and the seating was awful. I left some people out that I shouldn't have, but you know, it's the first time it's going to happen. And yeah, it just happened. And then, you know, it just kind of took off and people enjoyed it. So yeah, I guess that's kind of how it happened. I just was like, Hey, this would be fun. And then it turned out to be a really amazing thing. Cause it really, I loved how it united the apologist community. I never really expected that, but it was really an awesome thing that happened. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're yeah. running, we're going to run it again every year. We actually were running qualifiers because there's just so many apologies. And I had so many people saying, why'd you leave X out? Or why'd you leave Y out? I'm like, yeah, oh, that's tough. I, yeah. I didn't know about half these people before we started. Cause I'm still kind of <laughs> new to the yeah. thing. So there's qualifiers. Anyone can join. If you want in and you're apologist, just send me a Twitter DM or a YouTube comment or whatever. And I'll add you and we're running qualifiers and they're going strong and they'll go until March. And, Maybe the best thing. That's so, awesome. That's I great. I think. I, I yeah. think. I think the the best thing for it was how you brought people together. That was really cool. That's not a small feat on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty. I think it it all started when David Wood, and Mike Winger made those YouTube videos. It was like around that thirty two, I think, and they made YouTube videos saying "Vote for me." And yeah, then that, was that was cool. It, it gained heat after that, and it really started to take off and bring people together. So that was really yeah. it was awesome to see. That's great. So, That's great. Good job with that. Very good job with that. I'm excited. So we have one question from, okay. I'm not going to read the name, but it says, he, he says, or she, they say, it is, is it our job to preach in the Holy Spirit's job to change hearts? Absolutely. I can't, uh, I can't change anybody's heart. Um, but our job is to proclaim and to be messengers and to share as we are led and given the ability to do so. That's a weak area of mine. I'm kind of a melancholy. I keep to myself hiding my tortoise shell, but um, proclamation is what is the preferred method that Jesus left us with. I mean, he can change the hearts of anybody without a, the intervention of a man. He doesn't need us, but he gives us the grace to participate in transforming people's lives and he does the transforming the holy spirit's job is to remind us of jesus and what he taught and what he said and the holy spirit's job is to convict the world of sin and so when you proclaim the the word of god uh, the conviction of sin is is brought forth into the hearts of, of people uh, but uh, jesus talking about the spirit in john is one of my favorite passages um, one of the things that i always keep in mind about the holy spirit is that his role or you know who he is is to bring glory, kavod, to Jesus, and and no one can say Jesus is a uh, Jesus is accursed. Um, you can only say Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit. Um, you know John ten nine and or Romans ten nine and ten. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the ability to confess Jesus and to remember what he said and to share the gospel is the work of the Holy Spirit and the conversion of people to the Christian faith is a work of grace of the Holy Spirit, of Jesus, of the Trinitarian Godhead working in communique with us to change the hearts of people. Sometimes we get to see it, uh, but like Paul says, some plants, some water, some harvest, um, but we're all part of the body. I love the analogy in 1 Corinthians about the body. Some are eyes and hands and feet and eyebrows and toes, and everybody has a function in the body to do what they're doing. And uh, But yeah, ultimately I would say it is the role of the Spirit to bring conviction. He reminds the world of sin. Yeah, I mean, I'll elaborate on that a little bit. It's like a practical story. So there's yeah. someone in my family 
who I'm pretty close with and who's actually a non-believer. There's somewhere in between a deist and an agnostic, I would say. And we just were talking and I asked him the question, you know, the classic Frank Turek question, if Christianity is true, would you become a Christian? Because he has no reason to believe that Christianity is false. He just hasn't accepted it. And he's talking about it and it's really, you can see God working in him to it's really start up some thought in him in the past few days. We just talked about it again today. And I mean, I don't know what will happen, but I mean, I did my part. I mean, it wasn't necessarily preaching, but it was showing him the gospel and trying to lead him right. towards the gospel. But it's the Holy Spirit's job and his decision to, to really yeah. come to Christ. That's a great way to look at it. And you have a very, uh, the mindset that you need is one of patience. Because yeah. as, as my own testimony, you know, I didn't, it wasn't a finger snap. And if you were to come to me and hit me over the head with the Bible, I, that wouldn't work. Um, you 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 come across people's lives very briefly, and you know them for a time. You don't know what God's doing, and you don't know what part you're playing in that. But I think you need the bigger picture, and you need patience. And you, um, you know, I used to be frustrated I couldn't convert people when I was a brand new believer. Why don't you believe? I just gave you the best argument I could. Why don't you believe? But it, it's finally uh, we need patience. Uh, more than anything, to allow God to do the work of cultivating a heart, and it takes time. I mean, God spent waited 80 years for Moses, right? And then even when he was utilized, he wasn't the, the greatest spokesperson in the world, but God loved him and chose him and used him anyway. And so we we never know what the Spirit's doing exactly in the life of a person, and, and it may take years, months, days, weeks, but we we can't cajole or force or wheedle people into the kingdom. It just doesn't work. So there's a follow-up question from the same person. Uh, they say, do you then realize why some don't believe? Do I realize why some? Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, the scripture talks about uh, the sin of unbelief, a hardened heart, um, an unwillingness to believe, an unwillingness. Uh, there's there's that uh, mysterious mix that I don't often like to talk about, about you know human volition, human will, and God's divine sovereignty. How does that work? I don't know. I, I don't... Uh, I used to be a hardcore Calvinist, but I've kind of mellowed out on that. And I think that um, you, if you love people and you present the gospel in a faithful way, um, you can entrust that the Spirit is doing a work, even if they don't. If, you know, I have unbelieving family members who <laughs> who regularly torment me <laughs> whenever we get together. You know, I love my brothers, but two of us are Christians, two of us aren't. And the, the ones that aren't like to make it a living heck for the ones that are sometimes. <laughs> Um, but you know, we're family, but, but you know, I, they've known me for all my Christian life and beyond, and they're still not Christians. So it could take 20 years, 20 days, but, but yeah, sin, unbelief, um, emotions, dispositions, unfortunate circumstances, all kinds of things go into why a person chooses to believe or not to believe. But ultimately it is God's job to, to do that and how he does it. And when he does it is known only to him. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, I mean, I differ from you a little bit on this theologically, but I mean, the way I look at it is, we can present the base case that we can, but no one's going to be argued into the kingdom of God. Oh, I absolutely God's not going to. Yeah, I agree. I think we agree there. I mean, but I'm yeah. like less of a. I mean, I don't know what you stand now, but I'm probably in between Calvinism and Arminianism. But I think that if someone doesn't want to believe in God and accept the gospel, they're not going to. And it's sad, but it's just the way it is. So right, right, yeah, yep. Yeah. I'm probably right where you are. I'm I'm camped comfortably between 
I don't know. And I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a fair way of putting it. Uh, uh, when it comes to that question. We have another question from old things pass away. It's good to see you again. Uh, he says, could we technically go back and see when eclipses were during Christ's time to figure out exactly when Christ was on the cross? That is a very, it's a good question. And I've actually looked into that myself, but a lot of times when we do that, um, it's, it's done on um, various versions of astronomy software, making calculations. Um, we don't, so, so let's take, you know, I have Stellarium on my computer, which is a software program. It goes back pretty far. I don't know exactly. I've never taken it back to the, to the time, but um, given that we don't have specific chronology of Jesus's, uh, you know, dates like calendar dates, like we would like to have today. You know, we're so used to the numbers and the boxes and the weeks and the days and the months and the years and our watches and our time clocks and our timepieces. If you think about it, Zach, we are so exact and precise when it comes to timekeeping. Um, and the ancients were too, to an extent, but remember their calendars started by the sliver of a moon or sunrise or daylight. And so the, the precision of timekeeping that we appreciate and take for granted today was not something that was in the culture of the ancient time. So to take modern software, astronomy software or modern astronomy, and we can go back and we can do calculations, but uh, there's a lot of assumptions that would have to go into how calendars and timekeeping were back in those days uh, and how they would line up with our modern astronomical assumptions about uh, about time. So it. You can theorize and speculate, but that's really what it would be. We couldn't go back uh, to to eclipses uh, or anything like that to try to determine uh, the precise time of year and day that Jesus was born or that where he died or anything like that. Um, people have tried. I mean, especially with the star of the star of the Matthew star. What was that? When did it appear? What time of year? And uh, people have thought that the darkness at the noonday was an eclipse, a solar eclipse, but uh, given the duration of time, there was no way that could have been a solar eclipse. Um, so it is, there's nothing particularly wrong with trying to speculate or have a ballpark analysis of that. But I think um, in the end, it is, it would be theoretical, nothing that we could solidly prove. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's see here. So I think that's all the questions we have. I just want to say again, thank you, Daniel, so much for coming today and spending a little bit of your Saturday night with us. And I just want to remind everyone who's listening that if you want to pre-order Story of the Cosmos, which comes out on July 16th, and I would highly recommend you doing that. The link is in the description, so you can pre-order it right now and it'll be there on the date. So I just want to say again, thank you so much for coming on. I learned a lot. I hope everyone else did too. And is there anything you want to say, Daniel? I thank you for having me, Zach. It was wonderful, and uh, I would be happy to do it anytime. We don't have to talk about universe stuff. We can talk about scripture. Um, whatever you want, if you ever need a guest, I will be your resident go-to if you want somebody to come on your channel. I'll be glad to do it. I really enjoyed talking with you. Definitely. Me too. I'm sure we'll do it again. So uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. And we have a new slogan. I'm going to close with every day. But first, I have to talk about if you – like our videos, be sure to subscribe, hit the like button. You can find our social medias in the description. And if you want to become a Patreon or send a donation, that link is in the description. And our new slogan is, big questions need good answers. So thank you all and have a great night.